It's Tuesday, December 25th, Christmas Day. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. For Christmas Day, I wanted to share my favorite story of the year, because we all got duped. Do you remember playing the McDonald's Monopoly game? You'd buy a meal, and paper Monopoly game pieces either helped you get Park Place and Boardwalk, sometimes they were just instant wins for a free order of fries. Journalist Jeff Maish joins us to tell the story of how an ex-cop rigged the entire McDonald's Monopoly game and stole millions. The story includes mobsters, strip club owners, drug traffickers, one tenacious FBI agent, and the anonymous tip that brought the whole scheme down. Next, a new industry is booming, popping up all over the place, and prompting cities to take a step in regulating them. Companies are hoping that their product can solve many of the problems of getting around in densely populated areas. Pia Kokolicheva, tech reporter for Axios, will tell us about the electric scooter craze and how cities are handling this new e-scooter economy. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. People everywhere are winning big, playing the Monopoly game at McDonald's. Barbara Gray won a Sea-Doo jet boat. Jerry Colombo won a Dodge Viper. And there are two $1 million prizes left. With millions of prizes left, you could be next. So take a break and get a break at McDonald's. Joining us now is Jeff Mache, journalist and author who writes about unusual crimes and criminals. He was featured in the Daily Beast for this story. And it is a wild story. I love it. It's so good. It's one of those things that we, many Americans have participated in. It's the McDonald's Monopoly game. I remember getting my meal, peeling the stickers off of the soda, peeling it off of the fries, peeling it off the burger. They were putting it everywhere at one point. But this is the story of the wild scheme to rig the McDonald's Monopoly game. Jeff, start us off on this story. It's a little known fact, but the McDonald's Monopoly game was corrupted by the mob. It was an inside job that started back in 1987, and it happened during the production of those game pieces that you and I tried to collect during the 90s. An ex-cop that was running the production of those started stealing the winning prizes. It's a huge scheme that ended up happening, and it involved mobsters and people all across the country. They really built a network of people that they were giving game pieces to, and then you can cash it out. People were even driving to a different state so you can cash out your game piece so as not to uh, get the pool of winners so close together. More than 50 people were convicted of this crime, and they were professionals. These were organized criminals who set up a network. They gave people fake identities. They had people moving states to set up fake lives in the next state over to collect their winning ticket. And these were big prizes. Million-dollar tickets, $500,000 tickets. You could win a Dodge Viper. For almost 13 years, almost every major prize was stolen by this criminal gang. And the man behind it all is Jerome Jacobson. He's also known as Uncle Jerry. And he, obviously, he kind of made the most sense. He was the guy who was physically handling the winning game pieces and supposedly distributing them out to the McDonald's packaging places where, you know, he'd place the winning ticket on that hash brown package or that fry container. And it was him all along because he was working security for this. He developed a reputation for looking in people's shoes and making sure they weren't stealing the game pieces. But he was the guy all along. Everyone was completely shocked when it was revealed that 
Uncle Jerry was behind this crime because he just had this great reputation. A former cop in Hollywood, Florida, he was a stickler for security and and anti-theft. He invented all of the processes for McDonald's to make sure that none of these game pieces could be stolen. So really, he was in a prime position, and I think the temptation to steal was just too much for him. He was he was playing God. He was making right. millionaires. Yeah, he was a kingmaker uh, hand, handing out a million dollars at a time to these people. Who wouldn't be tempted? He's traveling across the country. He's wearing a special vest that he invented to keep the game pieces safe. And he's going to these factories, and it's down to him to put them on the on the French fry packets. And like most scams, it started off small. He gave his brother $25,000 here. He gave his butcher a free car. It started small. And then obviously greed takes over. And before you know it, he's getting involved with some very, very sketchy characters. So what was his process? How was he getting the game pieces and how was he distributing them out? And how was he getting paid in return for that? He was the head of security at the company that produced the game pieces. And it was his job to take them off the print production line and seed them at the factory. So he would fly with an independent auditor all around the country. They'd send him to a random factory and he would hide them in a soft drink cup or a French fry container. And it was his job to put it in at random. The only time Jacobson was not being watched by this auditor was when he went to the restroom. So he'd sneak into the toilet and he would rip open the envelope that contain these million dollar game pieces and he'd steal them. He'd swap them out for commons or blank game pieces. So no one really knew it was him for a long, long time. And it was a weird mix up, almost fate. He had gotten a package by mistake, which had those security tags on it where the envelope would be closed and they'd put a little security sticker on it. And that's how you knew it wasn't tampered with. He had gotten a pack of those. And then that's when he realized, I'm going to go in the restroom, I'm going to open it, and I'm going to reseal it with an authentic security sticker, and then nobody's any the wiser. This was a complicated procedure. McDonald's, obviously a huge company, and they trusted the printer and these independent auditors to come up with a system that was foolproof. But experts have told me that not one person should be trusted with the entire system. They should have swapped out Jacobson every couple of months and give the responsibility to somebody else so that this doesn't happen. One of the things that happened is not that he was taken off of the project, but they changed some of the processes for a little bit. And then years down the road, they put him back in charge. So he was back in the game again on that. Yeah, they did change it briefly because they had other problems with theft at McDonald's because the other members of staff, you know, in the restaurants were were stealing the tickets too. So it was a bit of a mess back then. So then how was he getting the payouts? I mean, he was setting people up to quote unquote win or find one of these magic game pieces. And then how was he making money off the deal with those people? Well, he'd charge them for, for the ticket. He'd sell, the, say, a million-dollar game piece for $50,000. If you win a million dollars with McDonald's, a lot of people don't know this, you can either get the money up front or you can have it sent to you in $50,000 installments for 20 years and you pay less tax. So what Uncle Jerry would say was, here's a million-dollar ticket. When you get your first installment of $50,000, send that to me and I'll keep it. And he did that dozens of dozens of times. So stealing up to $24 million in prizes. How does the mob figure into this? I mean, they were tied to the Colombo crime family. He even gave himself a mobster name, uh, Geraldo <laughs> Constantino or something. And he was dressing in flashy suits. You know, this is after the process had been going on for a while. He was making a lot of money. How did the whole mob factor come into place? Well, the mob get involved in everything, don't they? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, it's not uh, a lucrative business unless they're involved. So, 
Well, anything like gambling, bookmaking, numbers games. So Uncle Jerry met by accident a gentleman called Gennaro Colombo in an airport in Atlanta. And they got talking. Colombo admitted that he was a member of the Colombo crime family, one of the five crime families in New York. He claimed he was part of the mafia and he started becoming a middleman. For Jacobson. He was taking tickets and finding lucky winners. And he gave them to several people who went and claimed cars and million dollar prizes and boats. As we find out later in the story, getting involved with the organized criminals was actually part of Jacobson's downfall. It all came down to an FBI agent, Richard Dent, who really worked the case, uh, just really great detective work. And he's the one who found out. Uh, Columbo was involved and they were making money hand over fist on this process. The greed factor is high in an operation like this. Pieces started falling through the cracks. How did he crack this case? Frankly, there were just too many winners. The scheme got too big for its own good. And eventually someone picked up the telephone and they called the FBI field office and got through to Agent Dent, who's a brilliant white collar crime specialist. His job really is to break down bank fraud, mail fraud, public corruption, things like that. So the McDonald's case was kind of bizarre for Dent. I like to think of him at his desk surrounded by Big Mac wrappers. But the numbers, <laughs> right. I think, would have really appealed to him because he, he dealt with major crimes, major bank fraud. So he started tapping phones very early on. He tapped Jerry Jacobson's phone and immediately realized that this was a major, major fraud. Jacobson had also given his former partner, Columbo, the magic gray M&M. Uh, it was another promotion that his company that he was working security for was also in charge of. And he gave them that. They had it in their freezer for safekeeping so that when they could connect the dots and claim that prize, they were even going to do that. This was one of the wildest parts of the reporting of this story. So I had no idea about the M&M connection. And Robin Colombo, who is married to Gennaro Colombo, told me that she'd opened the fridge one night and found this mysterious great M&M and was about to eat it. She was very hungry. And her husband appeared behind her and said, don't eat that. That's worth a million dollars. And it was part of apparently the Mars Corporation ran a competition in the 90s to find a gray imposter M&M. And if you did, you were a millionaire. And although Mars didn't respond to my inquiries and neither did McDonald's or anyone involved in the production of these pieces, I did discover that the same company made the Mars corporations, the M&M promotional material as did the McDonald's stuff. So oh we can only assume that the criminal conspiracy might have been a bit bigger <laughs> than what we knew about originally. Back to how the case was cracked. They were handing out to people that they knew at certain points. They were handing it out. It's like, my butcher knows a guy who can win it. And they'd travel out of state. And then a lot of times what McDonald's would do would get these winners and put them in front of a camera and say, hey, congratulations. How did you win? And everything like that. Because people want to know. People want to keep the excitement up. The FBI agent, Richard Dent, would track those people down and say, well, they don't actually live in North Carolina. They live in South Carolina. And that's miles away from this last winner who was trying to claim the winning ticket in another state as well. So that's how he was putting together all the pieces. The turning point for the FBI was when Agent Dent printed out a map of the Carolinas and he put a pin in each of the winners' addresses once he'd found where they really lived. And about five or six of them 
all lived around this small town <laughs> near Anderson, South Carolina. And the odds of five or six people all winning a million dollars, one in 500 million chance, are absolutely astronomical. He knew that to get a conviction, the FBI would have to do something really splashy. So they decided to set up a McSting. I love that. The McSting. This was going on from 1989 at the beginning, at the early part of it, to 2001, 11 years. And this all came down because of an anonymous tip where they called a special agent Dent and told him about it. We still don't know who put that tip in, right? You must assume it might have been somebody who was wronged somewhere along the line in this process. I spoke to so many people who were convicted in this crime, and everyone has got an opinion on who the tipster was. My personal theory is one that I share with Robin Colombo, whose husband died during the case or just before the trial happened. And she believes that it was the Colombo crime family that called the FBI because of a family dispute. That's the theory that I think is the most reliable. In all of this millions of dollars in fraud, how much time did Jacobson get? How much did you say he was had handed out? It was in the 20-something million dollars, 24 million dollars? $24 million, yes. He yeah. pleaded guilty, so he got a much reduced sentence. He did about three years. That's it. He was one of the few people to go to jail. I think three other people got jail sentences, and they served just over a year. Everyone else, they got probation, and nearly 50 people are still paying back their restitution today at $50 a month. Oh, my God. It's an amazing story. We're going to link to it. Jeff Mace, journalist and author, covers unusual crimes and criminals, as this story definitely is. We found this in The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for telling us this story. It's a, it's a very fun one to, to read through and to listen to you tell. Thank you very much. They're all charging about a dollar to unlock the scooter. And most of them give you like 15 minutes built into that price. And then about 10 to 15 cents per minute after that. So it's pretty cheap. Joining us now is Kia Kokolicheva. She covers tech for Axios. There's this new business boom that's happening. Everybody wants in on it. City regulators are being forced to address it because it's growing and growing. And it has similarities to the current ride hailing economy that we have with car services such as Uber and Lyft. But this one is a little different. It's a lot cheaper. It's the electric scooter boom. Kia, what can you tell us about this? It is the latest craze right now in transportation. Even the right hailing companies are trying to get in on it. And as you mentioned, there are some differences. One of them is that none of the companies have to depend on labor to provide rides. So that's definitely changing the business model for them. Some of them are using independent contractors to charge the scooters or move them around, but that's a completely different side of the business. And then another thing that's proven pretty interesting to watch is that cities are getting to regulate the flow of these scooters and how many companies can operate, which didn't happen with ride hailing. Now you're seeing all these companies in San Francisco applying for a permit to operate. They'll be given a certain number of scooters that they can have on the streets at all times. They really need to beg their way into operating into the city. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, in San Francisco, 12 companies applied for five permits. Right. And so far, these scooter services are, like you said, San Francisco, Santa Monica, California as well, Austin, Texas, Washington, D.C. So you can it's starting to grow. Briefly, describe what these scooters are. They're kind of like the 
flat bottom, two little tires, and I guess they have an electric mo- motor to help you go? Yeah, that's definitely those. Um, they're a little bit of an upgrade on the classic not motorized kick scooter. But yeah, they're small and lightweight, and you just stand on them and ride around. Before this was those city bikes. They have the little bike racks. You can go and rent the bike for whatever the price was. And now they're doing this the exact same thing, but with the scooters. What's the price point on the scooters? They're all charging about a dollar to unlock the scooter. And most of them give you like 15 minutes built into that price. And then about 10 to 15 cents per minute after that. So it's pretty cheap. And as you said, a lot of cities are now having to get in the game of regulating these things because they're kind of becoming a problem. People leaving them wherever, creating a nuisance. I don't know, maybe you can drop it in a driveway and then cars can't get through. So it's kind of becoming a a small problem in these cities where they're really starting to get the ball rolling on the scooters. Exactly. I mean, a lot of the issues with that is that people are complaining that it looks bad around the streets and the sidewalks, but... More than that, it's actually a safety issue. I mean, if you think about sidewalks, as you mentioned, you can drop it in front of a garage door and then the car can't come out without literally driving over it. You know, you can drop them in front of a door and people can trip. You can leave them in the middle of the sidewalk and people who are on wheelchairs or any of that kind of stuff are going to have some issues getting around it. So it's both an issue of how it looks awful around the city, but it's also a safety problem. Is that the business model right now where you just leave it wherever? I know they're GPS and the company can track them down later, but is that what the model is? You just leave it anywhere on the street? For the most part, yeah. They're called dockless scooters, which we've also seen with a lot of the bike share services where you don't have to return it to that station, although that can change. I mean, A lot of the companies in their permit applications in San Francisco mention different things like working with the city on designated parking areas where they would have to be left and picked up from or creating scooter racks. So I think the companies are definitely realizing that they need to be flexible and maybe provide more order on that front to help with all these issues. But for the most part, they are designed for being dockless. What are some of the main companies involved in this? I know Uber and Lyft are developing plans for this. There's other companies called Skip and Bird, Lime. Who are these people comprised of? So it really depends on what city you look at. But in San Francisco specifically, we had Bird, Lime, and Spin that were out there um, before regulators kind of reined things in. Interestingly, Spin and Lime did bikes first. And then now we're seeing Uber and Lyft apply for the permits. Skip, which used to be called Waybot, was quietly operating in Washington, D.C., in partnership with the city government. And they're, they're actually based in San Francisco, so they want to operate here as well. We're actually seeing Razor, of all companies, applying for a permit. It's a boom. It's happening. A lot of businesses are getting into it. Safety is always a key concern. You can't just leave them everywhere, but a lot of people don't want to wear helmets when they're writing these things. So yeah, it is up to the cities to start regulating. Last question, do you really think that these scooters are going to take off more and more? Um, For cities and and densely populated areas, do you think this is really going to catch on? Yeah, to be honest, I do. One thing that's been interesting is that in San Francisco, the companies were ordered to take them off the street by June 4th. And since then, I've actually seen people riding their own electric scooters around the city which I think should be a clue that this is definitely a useful mode of transportation for residents. Kia Kokolacheva, she's covering tech for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>